1 Timothy chapter 3. If you're not familiar with uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, it's the Apostle Paul's letter to, at least in 1 Timothy, young pastor Timothy who is uh, overseeing the church in Ephesus. This morning we're going to look at the topic of church leadership or church authority. And I know immediately as you start to talk about authority, there's something that rises up in us and makes us a little bit uncomfortable. I don't know about you guys, but if I'm in a service, um, well, I pastor at Calvary Central, so it's not often I'm a guest at other churches. But if I'm in a service and the pastor says, turn to your neighbor and tell them amen, there's something in me that says no. I'm not going to do what you tell me to. So there, there's something in us that just kind of resists authority. Then add to that the reality that since the early church, there has been abuse of authority, abuse of power. Some of you may carry church hurt because the leadership uh, led in a way that was not biblical, if you will. Scripture says, Jesus says specifically, that leaders should not lord over those they have been called to shepherd. But we have seen a great deal, even in our generation, a great deal of abuse of power within the body of Christ. And when that happens, there is a great deal of pain that comes along with it. Leadership should not be authoritarian or domineering. But in some churches today, the leadership can't be questioned. They can't be called out on specific uh, errors in character. I came across a memo that was leaked. It was a, a mega church that issued a memo to all of their staff. And you could tell that the pastor had a, a big hand in authoring this memo. And it opened with the statement, our leader, comma, we work for him. That was how the memo opened. And then it continued with the mantra, I am here to serve my leaders. The key to my success in this organization is my ability to work in the way my leader wants me to, even if it is not my preference. And that's the issue with some of the abuses of power we see in the church today. Leaders begin to think that those who they serve are there to serve them. That memo went on, and this was the voice of the pastor now. There's a section entitled, How to Present New Ideas to Me. This is how you're supposed to approach this pastor with new ideas. When making a suggestion, do not add any adjectives in order to allow the team to decide what kind of idea it is. If you truly disagree with me, present it in the form of a question rather than a statement. Example, have you thought about rather than that's not right? Then he adds, if you make my wife's life hard, you make my life hard, which will make your life hard. And then he closed the memo with phrases that don't need to be said. 
One is I'll do my best. Because if you have to use that phrase, you're probably not doing your best. And sorry I'm late. Now I bring that up, and that's just a small example of maybe some of the abuse of power that we've seen in the church today. But again, this kind of leadership has done great harm to the body. Where in some strange way of thinking, these leaders think that those they have called to shepherd exist for their benefit. But then there's the other extreme. And I think many have run from that kind of leadership and that kind of abuse of power, and they've gone to the other extreme where there should be no authority. No authority of Scripture, no authority within the church. And what has that led to? That's led to a very individualistic Christianity where the church has been abandoned altogether, where I don't, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. Or we see this quite a bit uh, in our culture today, gatherings that pride themselves on a lack of leadership, sometimes a home fellowship, where there is no pastoral roles, we are all here uh, as one body, but someone has to decide what time to show up, right? And somebody decides what passage of Scripture, if any, that group is going through. But we see that quite a bit today. Either individualistic Christianity or just abandoning abandoning what they call organized religion altogether because of an issue with church authority. One of my favorite quotes from a show, I won't tell you the name, but it takes place in an office, um, (laughs) is a young man reflecting on the new boss. The old boss had moved on. There was a new boss uh, in the office. And he said, I got away with everything under the last boss, and it wasn't good for me at all. So I want guidance. I want leadership. But don't just boss me around, you know, like lead me, lead me when I'm in the mood to be led. (laughs) This chapter in chapter 3 of 1 Timothy, it brings church leadership into balance. It takes us away from the unbiblical extremes that exist in the church, and we see very clearly that pastoral oversight is God's will for the church for the church to be healthy and thriving and reflect the image of Christ, pastoral oversight is God's will. But that oversight should reflect the heart of Jesus. Let's pray and we'll begin. God, we thank you uh, for your word. It brings us into balance. It's our, our measuring line. It's the anchor to our soul. So Lord, as you teach us this morning, and as some maybe think to themselves, well, I'm not a pastor, this chapter is not for me, we know that you're dealing with leadership. Those that would raise their hands and want to be counted, that are willing to take on responsibility, that are willing to lead others for your sake, those who are willing to be reminders of your nature and your character, those who want to see others cared for well. 
So teach us, Lord, what it means to lead. And help us to carry the person of Christ in the forefront of our minds, who came not to be served, but came to serve. Thank you for that example. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, Paul communicated to Timothy in the first two chapters that there is order in God's design. God's kingdom is not one of chaos, but it is one of good and perfect order. We have seen God's order in his creation and his plan to redeem mankind, and we have seen God's order within the family. And now we're going to see God's order within the church as it pertains to leadership. Paul kind of sums this up in verse 15 of chapter 3 when he explains that the purpose of this part of his letter is so that we may know how we ought to conduct ourselves in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar in the ground of the truth. Now, I want to make something clear as we approach qualifications for godly leadership. You will see that Paul is not going to focus much at all on gifts and talents and abilities. Out of the 14 qualifications of a pastor, you'll see only one of them deals with gifting. The rest deal with character. The rest deal with the quality of the man. The rest highlight the characteristics of a man who is abiding in Jesus Christ and bearing the fruit of his character. That's what we will see in this chapter. God gifts the man that he calls. God gives him the abilities that he needs. And that goes for all of leadership. And we'll get into that in a moment. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. Don't get hung up on the word bishop. That, that's probably one of the areas that the new King James falls a little bit short in translating. Because that's taking an office that was created later in church history and translating it back into the original text. That term right there is overseer. The terms elder and bishop and pastor, they're all used interchangeably throughout Scripture. Elder describes the man. The word elder, it means mature, and not simply mature in age, but in depth of character and in faith. Faith that has had time to take root, and we'll get into that in a little bit. Bishop or overseer, that describes the ministry. It literally translates, again, to overwatcher, one who watches over the flock, overseeing the day-to-day needs of the church body. Not an overlord or someone who is overbearing, but an overseer carefully watching over the flock. Paul describes this method, how we are to oversee in the word pastor. That means shepherd or literally feeder, one who feeds the flock. So we have the quality of man, the elder. We have 
the overseer, the type of the ministry, and then the method by which they are to oversee, and that is feeding the flock, caring for the congregation. In Acts 20, 28, we read, Therefore, take heed to yourselves and all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you what? Overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And then Paul describes some qualities that, again, I believe are universal to godly leadership. So please don't for a moment think, well, this doesn't apply to me. I have not been called to be a pastor. We may not fill the specific role as a pastor, an elder, an overseer of a congregation, but we are overseers in some capacity. God has given us some sphere of influence in our lives, whether it's in our families or within our schools or in our workplace. You have some form of influence where people look to you for some level of care. Whether it's small or large, we are responsible for the well-being of another or others in some area of our lives. Now, that's not a popular thing right now, is it? There's not a whole lot of people willing to raise their hand and say, you know what, you can count on me. I'm willing to sacrifice my wants and my desires and my time for your good. We live in a generation that looks to avoid responsibility because we are so focused on me, the individual. You see fathers abandoning their role as fathers. And even mothers abandoning their roles as mothers. We see armchair quarterbacks that want to call the play, but they don't want to actually be in the game. We don't want to be the one accountable for making decisions that impact others. We can't even make a decision with our spouse about where we're going to eat. I mean, how often have you argued with, not argued, but, hey, where do you want to eat? I don't know, where do you want to eat? Why, why does that go back and forth? Because we don't want to be responsible for making a poor choice. But Paul says, this is noble. This is honorable. Guys, hear this. If you don't hear anything else, the rest of this service, we need godly leadership in the church. The church is desperate for it now. Now, what did, I did not say we need gifted individuals. We need charismatic individuals. We need uh, talented individuals. No, we need godly men and women to lead. Men and women people can count on. Men and women who are willing to take responsibility. Willing to sacrifice for the good of others and the glory of God willing to give up their time and their energy and their resources for the good of those around them. We need men and women to lead in their churches and lead in their families and lead in their, office, lead in their offices, to lead in the classroom. And that's what Paul is writing about. Listen to what he says. If a man wants to be specifically a pastor 
He desires what? A good work. He says, Timothy, this is valuable work. The work of the ministry within the church is honorable. It's respectable. You need honorable and respectable men to do that work. And Paul isn't celebrating the man who wants to do the work itself. He's not saying, oh, that kind of aspiration, that needs to be celebrated. He's saying the work itself is a respectable and honorable work. The work of caring for God's people is valuable. But did you notice what it is? It is a good what? Work. It's a good work. I did some uh, deep study into the Greek word that Paul uses there. And it's really interesting, the meaning behind the word work. If you look at the original Greek and you really break it down to the core of its meaning, you know what it means? It means work. <laughs> That's what it means. It's a good work. Godly leadership here, godly leadership is not concerned about the title or the office or the position or the prefix or the suffix that comes after their name. Godly leadership is concerned about the work of the ministry. It's not simply getting up on stage and preaching to the crowds. It's far, far more than that. People who want to be in front of the crowds, guess what? They're a dime a dozen. Now, I know some of you, you'd rather be poked in the eye than get in front of a crowd. But there are many, they just desire to be in front of people. They like the sound of their own voice. And they desire the position to be the one that everyone looks to. And guys, those people, again, are a dime a dozen. But people who are willing to love those who cannot offer much back in return or to love those on the fringes of society, those who are willing, again, to give of their precious time, people who are willing to do the work, even when, and especially when nobody notices, that is rare. But that's what the church needs. Leadership, pastoral leadership. It is a valuable work, but understand this, it is work. And I am so glad our young men and women are in here tonight, this morning. <laughs> because God may be placing a calling on your life. Young men, I, I want to encourage you. There's a vacuum in, in godly leadership in the upcoming generation. That's just the reality of it. If you feel a call on your life, maybe for, you don't know exactly what it looks like or what it's going to be, but you just can't escape this uh, desire to serve others. You just have a deep care and concern for the church of God. Would you come talk to Pastor John and I? We would love to take the time to share with you our experience and see how we can better equip you for whatever plans God has for you. Again, it's a valuable work, and it is work. Look at the qualifications. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2. 
And I'm going to replace bishop here with overseer. A overseer then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous, one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being puffed up and with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach in the snare of the devil. Now, Paul says must. These qualifications are required. They're, they're not a suggestion. And I find it interesting. On one hand, many people will say, oh, the Bible's easy to understand. It's always easy to understand. The Bible said it, I believe it, that settles it. I don't know that that individual has really studied the Bible. There are some difficult passages that require wrestling with to deeply understand. But on the other side of it, people will say, the Bible's too difficult to understand. And the areas that are made plain, oh, I don't know if we can trust that. It makes me uncomfortable. Guys, the areas that are plain in Scripture, let's let them be plain. And Paul says, these are the qualifications. These are the requirements. Leaders should not simply be warm bodies who just happen to volunteer. They should be chosen based on the qualification that Paul gives us here. And again, what didn't we see in these list of qualifications? I didn't see the word talented, naturally gifted, charismatic, attractive. He didn't say they should have a master's in theology. All these things can be achieved apart from abiding in Jesus Christ. They are all superficial, so we make a very serious mistake when these are the primary qualities we look for in our leaders. Now, there's nothing wrong necessarily with those things, but they are not the qualifications. Yet those are the exact things that some churches hold in high esteem when they're looking for someone to lead their body. Guys, a talented preacher isn't automatically qualified to lead a church. Just because they're gifted at speaking to a crowd, that doesn't mean that they're qualified to feed a church, to care for a church. Just as a gifted singer doesn't necessarily equate to a solid leader of congregational worship. So Paul focuses on character. Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. I remember a pastor many years ago at a church we were attending confess that he really enjoys preaching, but he's not any good at the one-on-one stuff. Guys, pastoring is the one-on-one stuff. It is caring for the individual. And the only way to do that well is to share the heart of Christ. And the only way to share the heart of Christ is to abide in him, to remain in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. 
So Paul focuses on the character and the heart. And he starts by saying, this leader, this overseer must be blameless. That means perfect. It means flawless. So today I resign from my position as overseer. Is that what Paul means? We would have no pastors. That word blameless, it means nothing to hold on to. Adam Clark puts it this way, for the word is a metaphor taken from the case of an expert and skillful fighter who so defends every part of his body that it is impossible for his opponent to land a punch. The one who is an overseer understands that they are stepping into a spiritual war. And the devil wants nothing more than to see godly leaders fall. Because when a Christian falls, others are hurt. When a Christian leader falls, many are hurt. And he loves dragging the name of Christ through the mud. So that word blameless acknowledges that there's an opponent. In Luke twenty-two thirty-one, Paul is speaking. Jesus is, is speaking to Simon Peter, and the Lord said, Simon, Simon, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail, and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. But Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. You know what that's called? pride. Peter was confident in his own ability. I'm going to follow you to the death. And Jesus said to him, I tell you, Peter, the rooster shall not crow this day before you will deny three times that you even know me. You think you're going to follow me to my death? You're going to pretend like you don't even know who I am. His pride is what left him open to attack. But after he fell and Jesus was crucified and he rose from the dead, Jesus restored him by the Sea of Galilee and called him into the ministry. After establishing, Peter, you say you love me, but in reality, you like me. And now that you understand that, go and feed my sheep. Now that you understand that you are frail and you are weak, but I am strong. I am your defense. Now go and feed my sheep. That's the shield of faith that Paul speaks of. A complete trust in the promise of Jesus that the old man is dead and we are free from the bondage of sin and we are a new creation in Christ. blameless, nothing to hold on to. And then he says, husband to one wife, or literally a one-woman man. Again, we have taken something plain and made it mean far more than Paul intended. Some would take this to mean, well, they have to be married. Or if they're a, widow, a widower and they're remarried, they cannot be in pastoral ministry. 
that's a subject to a great deal of de- debate. Who is Paul excluding here? Is he excluding single men? Is his mind simply on polygamists? Is he thinking about those who have divorced and remarried, those who are widowed and remarried? What is Paul talking about? Paul is talking about a man who is faithful to one woman. He is talking about fidelity. Because faithfulness to your wife often means faithfulness to God. A man of unquestioned morality, one who is entirely true and faithful to his one and only bride, because that is a picture of Christ. How can you reflect Jesus when in your own marriage you're not a one-woman man? See, the Greeks, they had an idea that every man should have three women in their lives, that they should have a mistress for fun and conversation, they should have a concubine primarily for sex, and then their wife to bear children with. And some men live this way today. And we may say, no, not today. Some men are married to one woman, but they entertain the idea of many women. They have a work wife, they have their pornography, and then they have the woman that gave birth to their kids. And Paul says very plainly, this is not a man who is cut out for leadership. And I think there's a reason that Paul lists these two qualifications first. Blameless and a husband of one wife, one woman man, because many men have fallen in the area of pride and sexual sin. They have left themselves open to attack. They've entertained the idea of another woman and then acted on it. And many, many people have been hurt by this very, very egregious sin. And then he says, this is the trifecta, if you will, of self-control. He says, temperate, sober-minded, and of good behavior. Temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior. These three things all have to do with our favorite word, self-discipline. Self-control, a mastery of one's emotions, one's thoughts, and one's actions. Temperate means you are not mastered by your feelings and your emotions. It's a Greek word that was also often used in relation to alcohol, but it can be used in any area where we might be given over to extremes. This is a man who is balanced doesn't mean he doesn't know how to have fun. It doesn't mean that he um, doesn't feel anything. He's stoic and, and without emotion, but his emotions are in check. He's not given to his feelings. He's given to prayer. He is stable, reliable, and faithful. He's not reactionary. There's a story of a man in Seattle who was known for his punctuality. One morning, however, he slept a little too long, And realizing his mistake, he ran out to his car, he raced across town, and he made it to the dock just in time to see the ferry he usually rode to work pulling away from the pier. Slamming his car into park, he grabbed his briefcase and he jumped over the railing, narrowly landing on the deck of the ferry. What a jump, the captain said. 
I've never seen such an effort, but if you would have waited another minute, we would have been at the dock. A godly leader is someone who doesn't struggle with waiting on the Lord. That's one, one of many things I've learned from Pastor John. If we want something to happen and it's taking God too long, we often do everything in our power to fit that square peg into the round hole. We often live our lives ahead of God. Pastor John has taught me patience in ministry. Patience is trust. Waiting is so hard, but waiting is saying, God, I believe that your plans are higher than my own. I understand that all, at all times, things are never out of your control. And this is his ministry, not ours. So waiting is absolutely necessary. And this is very hard for men that just have that, that it's a gift, that drive. But oftentimes that gift can drive over others and leave God behind. So he says temperate. So that's temperate in emotion. Then he says sober-minded. That's the opposite of having clouded judgment. The ability to think clearly, clearly, to see something for what it is, means that you're sensible, that you have discipline of mind. That's not something we often think about. When we think about discipline, we often think about what we do, not what we think. But to be disciplined in what we do, we have to be disciplined in our thought life, taking every thought into captivity for the sake of Jesus Christ, thinking on things above and not things below. Scripture has a lot to say about mastering our thought life. It's not simply positive thinking for the sake of positive thinking. It's setting our minds on what is good and true. Because all of you know that our minds can be a very desolate place. can be a very dark place. So he says sober-minded, clear-headed, seeing things and thinking upon things from the right perspective. And the only right perspective is God's perspective. And I know of no better way to have God's perspective than, find myself, than to find myself thinking on His Word. It's easy, it's so easy to lose sight of the big picture, especially when it comes to ministry. Let me pose this test. For you. If you're wondering if you've lost sight of the most important things, if you've lost sight of the reason we're here, the purpose we draw, purpose behind why we draw breath, let me ask how much of a priority is the spiritual of spiritual well-being of others in your life? How deeply do you care? about the spiritual walk of those around you? How deeply do you want them to know Jesus more? Whether they're unbelievers, whether they're men and women within the body of Christ. See, when that takes a back seat, something's off. 
When something is important to us, it is obvious. We safeguard it. We protect it. When fellowship is important to us, we don't look for an excuse to get out of it. So God, give us your vision. Help us to see things through your eyes. So we have temperate, sober-minded, and then all of that leads to good behavior. That's a, simply an outward expression of what's already going on within someone's heart. It's the same word that Paul uses for modest in chapter 2. It's not, a, it's not someone who, att- who seeks attention or has to be noticed. It's someone who is good at removing self from the equation, and they put into practice all that God is doing in their lives. Let's keep moving. The next is hospitable. What does hospitable sound like? You can say it out loud. Hospital. And that's a good way to think about it. It's someone, again, as we talked about, it's someone who desires to see people healed or revived or restored. When you came here this morning, were you thinking, man, what can I do or say to encourage somebody this morning? Because I'm deeply concerned about the people that I gather with on a Sunday morning. I'm not trying to condemn anyone. It's just not our natural way of thinking. But Paul says a leader, someone who has oversight in the church, that should be what they're thinking about. Who's hurting? Who needs to be cared for? Cindy Ahart, she's an ER nurse. She walks into that ER with that mindset, how can I help this patient most of the time? That's what she's thinking about, (laughs) right? Like 80% of the time, right? How can I help? And that's what God is calling us into. Jesus came to heal the brokenhearted and set captives free. Are we excited that someone might gather with us on a Sunday morning just bound by the sins of this world and we have an opportunity to love them into the kingdom of God by sharing the truth of the gospel and displaying it because we are concerned about their well-being. That takes time, doesn't it? That takes laying down our agenda and what we want to do and who we want to talk to and how, what we want to get out of the service, and it places it on the needs of others. That's what it means to be hospitable. We are in a hospital. This is not a resort. This is a hospital. I was healed in this hospital. I'm continually healed in this hospital. There are weeks that are incredibly difficult for me And then I gather together with you guys, and guess what? My perspective is transformed. Just because of the love you guys show one another, and you show me and my family, and I begin to just reorient around the things of God again, because this is a hospital. If you're broken, welcome to the family. This is where we come to find healing. And not just within these walls, in the relationships that we build, in the conversations that we have outside of church, in the lunches, in the, all the gathering we do outside. We are the body, not this building. We are the church. And we're to be hospitable. The Greek there literally means kindness to strangers. 
I'll tell you, we live right now in a loneliness epidemic. People spend more time by themselves during this generation, in this generation, than ever in American history. People are alone. And we have the opportunity to show them they are not alone. That there is a God who loves them deeply. And that should be a characteristic of all followers of Jesus. And again, that's what we have to get through our heads. These overseers, these leaders, they are the first to lay down their lives. That's what it means to lead. I don't, you don't exist for me. God has equipped me to serve you. I will always be your servant, not perfectly, but, and this is, I think, Jonathan Edwards, you can never be my master. Jesus is my master. But I pray through Pastor John's example and my example and our leadership's example that you would somehow see Jesus more clearly so that you may in turn display the character of Christ. And then he says, able to teach. And let me make this clear. This is less about being a teacher and more about being a student. A phenomenal teacher is one who has never stopped learning. When we have arrived, or in our minds think we have arrived, and we know everything there is to know about the Bible and God's Word and the Gospel, then we will be put on a shelf. We cannot take someone somewhere we haven't been ourselves. So an overseer must be a student so that they may teach. And I'll tell you this again, more teaching takes place one-on-one -on -one than it does in the pulpit. Now, without a doubt, the pulpit is the place for the teaching and preaching of God's Word, but there is so much teaching that takes place outside of the pulpit. They must be able to teach. And then not given to alcohol and wine. That Again, the literal Greek there means someone who doesn't find themselves consistently near wine. Who's someone whose lives does not, life does not revolve around alcohol or any other mind-altering substance. I think it's safe to say this, that especially after Paul has expressed the importance of having a clear mind. There is something much deeper going on if a man must self-medicate with substances. That should be plain. But again, the church so often sees it as a suggestion and not mandatory. And then, let's keep moving, not violent. Not verbally violent, not physically violent. Jesus said, blessed are the peacekeepers. Violent men are insecure men. Violent men, physically, verbally, are insecure men. They're men that have something to prove. They are looking often to make something of themselves. But a godly man has nothing to prove because God fights his battles. Like David said when his son Absalom sought to overthrow the kingdom, 
He said, it's in God's hands now. If God desires for me to still be king, I'll still be king. If he desires for Absalom to rise up, it'll be Absalom. But God is in control. Who am I? And then this is so important. Not greedy for money. A godly leader, his motivation for ministry cannot be financial gain. Now I know all of the megachurch pastors and their fancy watches and their fancy cars and their jet planes, they get all of the, the, the media coverage, don't they? God, I don't know what his plans are for them. I worry about them. The ones that will go on TV and say, hey, you sow into my ministry and God's going to bless you tenfold and they are there for financial gain. I don't know what God has planned for him, them, but I, I don't want to be them. But keep in mind, most churches, the average size of a church is 100 people. The megachurch is a small, small sliver of evangelical Christianity. It just gets the most play in the news. So most pastors... They're not in it for financial gain. And Paul says that it, it can't be a part of that man. Paul calls out the false teachers in his second letter to Timothy for doing this exact thing. But you know what? You can do this for selfish gain that isn't monetary. You know what I mean? You can have another itch that you need scratched. And for some reason, the pastoral ministry scratches that itch for you. Paul's saying that your calling has to be people. In chapter 6, Paul calls the love of money the root of all kinds of evil. In 1 Peter 5, 2, Peter writes, Shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers, not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, nor as being lords over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. And in 1 Samuel 12, 12, Samuel said to all Israel, Indeed, I have heeded your voice and all that you said to me. I have made a king over you. And now here is the king walking before you. And I am old and gray-headed. And look, my sons are with you. And I have walked before you from my childhood to this day. Here I am. Witness against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Or whose donkey have I taken? And whom have have I cheated? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I received any bribe with which to blind my eyes? I will restore it to you. And they said, you have not cheated us or oppressed us, nor have you taken anything from any man's hand. That is a godly leader. They can stand back and look at their lives, serving the flock and say, what have I taken from you? I have lived to give to give of myself, to pour myself out for your sake. Do you see the common thread in all of these characteristics? Not motivated but by anything, but a love for Jesus and a love for his people.
young men who are sitting in here. If you're feeling that call to ministry, you'll never be able to shake it. I worked in health insurance before I was called to the ministry. But working in health insurance just paid for our needs as a family as we served in youth ministry. That was our calling. I couldn't escape that. That's what got me excited in the morning. That's why I woke up, because we loved serving the youth and serving our church. It wasn't anything that existed within me. It was what God was doing through me. And I could not escape that call. So yes, I worked a nine to five, but it was to fund what we're doing in the children's or the youth ministry. And then one day, Pastor John sat me down and said, would you like to come on staff? And I said, let me pray about it, yes. (laughs) And that was two decades ago. But I promise you will not be able to shake that calling. But remember, that calling is to love Jesus deeply and love others well. That's the ministry. To abide in Christ and allow his image to be uh, reflected through the way that you live. And again, we would love to help shepherd you in that area if that is your calling. Again, Paul also says they must be gentle, which again echoes that we must lead like Jesus led. He didn't drive over people. He loved them. People weren't a stepping stone to accomplish his purpose. People are his purpose. And then not quarrelsome, not argumentative, not covetous, meaning we look at other people's ministries and think, oh man, I wish I was like that. This is something that I heard the other day and it was so poignant This pastor was speaking to other pastors and he said, your ministry is not to the general public. It is to the flock that God has put in your care. Spend less time focusing on your blogs and your posts that go out into the ether and focus more time on the church that God has called you to shepherd. Now I'm thankful for some pastors who are, have ministries that extend outside of their, their fellowships, but in reality, God has called us to shepherd you. And that is a gift that I never take for granted. Not covetous. One who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. Not perfect kids. It's not fair for you to expect my kids to be perfect. Luke got a haircut for this service, and for that I'm grateful. But there should be respect. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? If we can't love and lead our families well, how can we ever come close to loving and leading a church family well? That's Paul's point. And then, not a novice. I know there's, this is a long list, so we're almost done here. Not a novice. You know what that means? It means not newly planted. 
It goes back to the idea of an elder, someone whose roots run deep from abiding in the vine. You know what it takes for roots to run deep? Time. Time. Someone who has suffered, someone who understands that the only good thing in them is Jesus, and they won't touch the glory because they know it's not theirs. And that takes some humbling, and life has a way of humbling you. No, think about the parable of the seed and the sower. There was the seed that was tossed out and landed on the road, and that immediately was taken away by birds. But then there were three other seeds. There was a seed that fell amongst thorns and weeds, and it shot up. There was a a seed that fell on shallow ground, and that shot up. And then there was a seed that fell on good ground. And one thing that all of those plants had in common is they were there for a little bit, right? They, if you were walking down that road, they would all look the same until trials, until suffering, until pain. And the only one that remained was the one that was in good soil. Same with the, uh, the two men that build their homes, one on a a foundation of rock and one on a foundation of sand. If you would have walked by those two homes for a moment, they would have looked the same until what? The wind came and the one who built his house on sand, it fell. So Paul says, don't be so quick to lay hands on someone just because they are gifted. And then finally, he says, a good testimony. That all these things are not just evident in the church, but they're evident outside of the church. You can ask people in their lives about their character, and they will all tell you the same thing. That's what led us to Calvary Central, the man that Pastor John was at home, because I knew Pastor John is just John. I grew up in a Mennonite church, and Pastor John and my dad were in a Christian rock band together. And that's how we knew the family. And whenever we'd come to visit, the man in the pulpit was the man playing Goldeneye with us. And that's what Paul says. We shouldn't find out these hidden secrets that happen outside of the church. If someone finds out that a man is an elder, they should say, yeah, I can see that. These men must have spent time with Jesus. That's what they said about the disciples. These men must have spent time with Jesus. Now, I'm not going to go over all of these again for deacons. Deacons are simply an extension of pastoral oversight. That's why we see the same qualifications for deacons. I am so grateful for the godly men we have in our church fellowship that example the heart of Christ. They lead like Jesus. Keep in mind, Jesus is the perfect overseer. He's the perfect shepherd. In 1 Peter 2.21, for to, for to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. 
who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers of your souls. My leadership should not cause you to follow me. My leadership should point you to Jesus. He is the shepherd of our souls. Let's pray. Have the worship team come forward. We're going to share communion together. Lord, I want to personally thank you for the privilege that I have in serving alongside these men and women. Thank you for what you're doing at Calvary Central. Thank you for the men and women here who have raised their hands and accepted the responsibility to lead. And Lord, I pray that you would raise up more. We know the purpose of this calling is not to build an organization or to just simply grow in numbers. We know that healthy, godly, Christ-like leadership results in the image of Christ being shown to a world that desperately needs him. So help us to have that hospital mindset where we care well for one another. Do that work in our lives, Lord. We desperately need it. And Lord, I pray for the young men in here. We need godly young men to step up and say no to some of the, the pleasures of this world and follow you and find the ultimate satisfying thing. It's being in communion with you knowing your will and doing your will, being someone that others can count on, taking pride in being that kind of man. And Lord, I thank you for the women who have stepped up and they lead in so many different ways. Lord, we just want to bear the heart of Jesus. Do that work in us. We love you and ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.